Chapter Eleven of Bullets and Billets by Bruce Bairn's Father. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven: Stock Taking, Fortifying, Nebulous Fragments. Hudson, myself, his servant, and my servant all crushed into that house that night. What a relief it was! We all slept in our greatcoats on the floor, which was as hard as most floors are, and dirtier than the generality but being out of the water and able to stretch oneself at full length made up for all deficiencies. Hudson and I both slept in the perforated room, the servants in the larger chamber near the fire bucket. I got up just before dawn as usual and taking advantage of the gray light stole about the village and around the house, sizing up the locality and seeing how my position stood with regard to the various machine-gun emplacements. The dawn breaking I had to skunk back into the house again as it was imperative to us to keep up the effect of deserted house in village. We had to lurk inside all day, or, if we went out, creep about with enormous caution and go off down a slight slope at the back until we got to the edge of the wood, which we knew must be invisible to the enemy. I spent this day making a thorough investigation of the house, creeping about all its component parts and thinking out how we could best utilize its little advantages. Hudson had crept out to examine the village by stealth, and I went on with plots for fortifying the castle, and for being able to make ourselves as snug as we could in this frail shell of a cottage. I found a hole in the floorboards of the attic and pulled myself up into it thereby. This attic, as I have said before, had all one end blown away, but the two sloping thatched sides remained. I cut a hole in one of these with my pocket-knife, and thus obtained a view of the German trenches without committing the error of looking out through the blown-out end, which would have clearly shown an observer that the house was occupied. Looking out through the slit I had made, I obtained a panoramic view more or less of the German trenches and our own. The view, in short, was this. One saw the backs of our own trenches, then the no-man's-land space of ground, and beyond that again the front of the German trenches. This is best explained by the sketch map which I give on the opposite page. I saw exactly how the house stood with regard to the position, and also noticed that it had two dangerous sides, i.e., two sides which faced the Germans, as our position formed two sides of a triangle. I then proceeded to explore the house. In the walls I found a great many bullets which had stuck in between the bricks of the solitary chimney or embedded themselves in the woodwork of the door, or supporting posts at the corners. Amongst the straw in the attic I found a typical selection of pathetic little trifles, two pairs of very tiny clogs, evidently belonging to some child about four or five years old, one or two old and battered hats, and a quantity of spinning material and instruments. I have the small clogs at my home now, the only souvenir I have of that house at St. Yvon, which I have since learnt is no more the Germans having reduced it to a powdered-up mound of brick-dust and charred straw. Outside and lying all around were a miscellaneous collection of goods. Half a sewing-machine, a gaudy cheap metal clock, a sort of mangle with strange wooden blades, which I subsequently cut off to make shelves with, and a host of other dirty, rain-soaked odds and ends. Having concluded my examination, I crept out back to the wood and took a look at it all from there. Yes, I thought to myself, it's all very nice, but by gad we'll have to look out that they don't see us, and get to think we're in this village, or they'll give us a warm time. 
It had gone very much against my thought-out views on trench warfare, coming to this house at all, for I had learnt by the experiences of others that the best maxim to remember was, don't live in a house. The reason is not far to seek. There is something very attractive to artillery about houses. They can range on them well, and they afford a more definite target than an open trench. Besides, if you can spot a house that contains, say, half a dozen to a dozen people, and just plop a Johnson right amidships, it generally means exit house and people, which, I suppose, is a desirable object to be attained according to twentieth-century manners. However, we had decided to live in the house, but as I crept back from the wood I determined to take a few elementary and common-sense precautions. Hudson had returned when I got back, and together we discussed the house, the position, and everything we could think of in connection with the business as we sat on the floor and had our midday meal of bully beef and biscuits, rounded up by tea and plum and apple jam spread neat from the tin on odd corners of broken biscuits. We thoroughly talked over the question of possible fortifications and precautions. I said what we really want is an emergency exit somewhere where we can stand a little chance if they start to shell us. He agreed, and we both decided to pile up all the odd bricks which were lying outside at the back of the house, against the perforated wall, and then sleep there in a little easier state of mind. We contented ourselves with this little precaution to begin with, but later on, as we lived in that house, we thought of larger and better ideas, and launched out into all sorts of elaborate schemes as I will show when the time comes. Anyway, for the first couple of sessions spent in that house in St. Yvonne, we were content with merely making ourselves bulletproof. The whole day had to be spent with great caution indoors. Any visit elsewhere had to be conducted with still greater caution, as the one great thing to be remembered was, don't let em see we're in the village. So we had long days, just lying around in the dirty old straw and accumulated dirt of the cottage floor. We both sat, and talked, and read a bit, sometimes slept, and through the opening beneath the sack across the back door we watched the evenings creeping on, and finally came the night when we stole out like vampires and went about our trench work. It was during these long sad days that my mind suddenly turned on making sketches. This period of my trench life marked the start of fragments from France, though it was not till the end of February that a complete and presentable effort suitable for publication in a paper emerged. It was nothing new to me to draw, as for a very long time before the war I had drawn hundreds of sketches, and had spent a great amount of time reading and learning about all kinds of drawing and painting. I have always had an enormous interest in art. My room at home will prove that to anyone. Stacks of bygone efforts of mine will also bear testimony to this. Yet it was not until January 1915 that I had sufficiently resigned myself to my fate in the war to let my mind turn to my only and most treasured hobby. In this cottage at St. Yvonne the craving came back to me. I didn't fight against it, and began by making a few pencil scribbles with a joke attached, and pinned them up in our cracked shell of a room. Jokes at the expense of our miserable surroundings they were, and these were the first fragments. Several men in the local platoon collared these spasms, and soon after I came across them muddy and battered in various dugouts nearby. After these few sketches, which were done on rough bits of paper which I found lying about, I started to operate on the walls. With some bits of charcoal I made a mess on all the four walls of our back room, 
There was a large circular gash made by a spent bullet, I fancy, on one of the walls, and by making it appear as though this mark was the center point of a large explosion, I gave an apparent velocity to the figure of a German which I drew above. These daubs of mine provoked mirth to those who lived with me and others who occasionally paid us visits. I persisted, and the next masterpiece was the figure of a soldier, afterwards private blobs of fragments, sitting up a tree staring straight in front of him into the future, whilst a party of corpulent Bosch are stalking towards him through the long grass and barbed wire. He knows there's something not quite nice going on, but doesn't like to look down. This was called the listening post, and the sensation described was so familiar to most that this again was apparently a success. So what with scribbling, reading, and sleeping, not to mention time occupied in consuming plum and apple jam, bully, and other delicacies which a grateful country has ordained as the proper food for soldiers, we managed to pull through our days. Two doses of the trenches were done like this, and then came the third time up, when a sudden burst of enthusiasm and an increasing nervousness as to the safety of ourselves and our house caused us to launch out into really trying to fortify the place. The cause of this decision to do something to our abode was, I think, attributable to the fact that for about a fortnight the Germans had taken to treating us to a couple of dozen explosions each morning, the sort of thing one doesn't like just before breakfast. But if you've got to have it, the thing obviously to do is try and defend yourself. So the next time up, we started. End of chapter 11. Recording by Philip Gould.